Welcome to the Foxy Podcast, a bi-monthly show brought to you by Freeform Freakout. The show is produced at KMSU Studios in Mankato, Minnesota. And here on the Foxy Podcast, we try to dig deeper into underground and experimental sounds of the past and present. And welcome to episode number 202 of the Foxy Podcast Show. Hope you're all doing well out there, wherever you're listening from. On this installment, we're going to be digging into the work of the London-based record label, Horn of Plenty. In 2013, Nick Hamilton started up a small imprint called Vitelli after years of working in and around record shops and distributors. After a pair of releases, Vitelli would eventually morph into what is now Horn of Plenty, a label that reflects Hamilton's interests in fringe music with a distinctive DIY and avant edge to it. I recently had a chance to chat with Nick about a range of topics, including his formative years of discovering fringe sounds, his friendship with Ian Ross of the London Sound Survey, his inspiration for starting up a record label of his own, and his appreciation for brick-and-mortar record shops. You'll hear that interview spread out in segments throughout the show. You'll also hear track selections from almost every release that Nick has put out on both Vitelli and Horn of Plenty so far, including a few forthcoming releases that are due out in the next month or so. But before we get into that first interview segment, we'll begin with a block of music here that starts with the very first release to come out on Horn of Plenty. It's the Mud Guards and the track Any Old Irony off of the album On Guard. This is Colonel Britain speaking. All over Europe, men salute the Mud Guards with a V sign separating their fingers, the sign and rhythm of resistance to tyranny. Now, there's a V sound. Oh, yeah. 
prior to starting your work in, in running a label, what was your involvement in, or I guess perhaps what were some of your formative experiences in this more fringe area of music that you're currently, uh, I guess, working in? Oh, wow. Um, well, uh, so I, I started buying records in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, very quickly, kind of, you know, got really into it and would spend a lot of time in record shops. It's a good time to do that, you know. Um, so I kind of got into fringe music quite young, quite a long time ago. Um, so I'm talking Frobbing Gristle, Cabaret Voltaire, that kind of stuff, you know, um, post-punk, early industrial, all that kind of stuff. But I was equally interested in, you know, um, sort of funk, early electro, um, various things. You know, I'd go out clubbing, I'd go to see bands like The Birthday Party or, you know, um, very broad taste very early on. And I'd sort of very young age, had this kind of idea that to buy records it was best to buy the records that my mates didn't buy so that we collectively had more to choose from you know um so yeah i kind of got got into buying records religiously and um sort of stopped going to school at quite a young age should we say um spent most of my time in record shops ended up you know my, my first job was in a record shop and i ended up working in distribution um in the 80s, did a stint at Rough Trade, and uh, most of my time was spent at a company called Caroline, which doesn't exist now, but it's a subsidiary of Virgin Records. Mm-hmm. So, you know, all the records I could eat. Um, <laughs> and, of course, that just encouraged you to, to be more and more um, explorative in, in your approach, you know. So, um, yeah, those early ones that stand out to me now, sort of, I don't know, early... Soviet France records, they were a big deal for me. Half the trio, the early touch stuff I was really into mm-hmm. at the time, you know. Um, yeah, um, but equally I was bringing boxes of very early house music over from Chicago and, um, yeah. Yeah, were, <laughs> you, you, was your role yeah. as someone who was ordering stuff uh, for those uh, shops and distros i mean did you have a pretty active role in bringing in stock from things that you were just curious about is that what you were saying yeah um yeah so there was a guy called walter cw pass in chicago and we used to communicate on the telephone and i'd order boxes from him um that was the the early house stuff there was um do you remember dutch east india Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah yeah so um a guy called Arturo, I don't know whatever happened to him, if he's still around or not, but um, we used to kind of swap, you know, I'd send him uh, the Camberwell now, and he'd send me, I'm trying to remember things that he'd send me, I can't remember, but um, yeah, you know, equivalent American releases, and I'd right. send him the, the English releases, we'd trade a lot, you know. Um, so yeah, just from a very young age, just just really sort of gravitated towards the stuff that that other people weren't buying so much. And, of course, we had John Peel and, right. you know, pretty good music press at that time, you know, and, and good in the sense that lots of small acts got a bit of a... Uh, got some, you know, some some space in the columns, got reviews mm-hmm. and things like that. So you could find out about stuff. Yeah, yeah. Did you have a hand in, in making music of your own at the time? Has it always just been records has been your primary focus? 
I did, but nothing of any significance. I was yeah. in a couple of bands. We did a few gigs. Um, yeah. I was very close to the Mudguards. Um, yeah. I ended up releasing a record of, of their stuff. You know, we lived together. Um, and, yeah, a few other people that, uh, you know, I was hanging around with. Um, I was a DJ um, when that kind of, um, sort of, just before that whole Acid House thing came out, that DJ thing was kind of uh, bubbling away. And I was interested in that. And I was, you know, we were doing some squat parties and, and things like that. Sure, sure. Well, I know one of our early interactions uh, was for a radio special that you produced on Kai Records. And I kind of had to go back through the website posts and stuff, and I realized that it was back in the fall of 2014 when, when you had produced that. And if I remember correctly, you, you had produced some other like special shows, like radio features. Is that, is that correct? Did you do more of that? Yeah, so um, in the late 90s, um, I'd sort of moved away from the record industry, sold all my records. You know, it was kind of as far as I was concerned, it was all over with music. I just, you know, I'd lost lost the love for it and never really got into CDs and all that kind of stuff. You know, so um, and spent a couple of years um, being a dad and sort of just searching for something to replace it. Um, and I was really interested in film but that wasn't so easy to to kind of get into you know um and i was also quite interested in radio as well um and there was a, a sort of grassroots organization here called the, the london musicians uh co-op um lmc and they started a, a radio station in the early 2000s called resonance fm which is still going now um and i ended up getting involved with them and sort of you know you could pretty much make anything you want you know so um so I did and um, got into that and ended up working as a producer for quite a while. Did all sorts of radio stuff um, for many years. Ended up teaching it actually for a, mm. for a good few years as well. And that was kind of coming to an end around about the time that that we met. Okay, yeah. And I guess what put you on, on my radar and in, before even starting Horn of Plenty, which I know we're going to be talking more in depth about here, but you had put out uh, a pair of LPs under the label name Vitelli. Uh, before that label dissolved and I guess it dissolved quickly because you put out two records and it was over and I guess what was behind ending that and and then kind of later on spearheading Horn of Plenty yeah um there was no plan no no well there was a plan but there, the plan wasn't to release two records and then disappear mm-hmm. um so Ian the first record I did was the London Sound Survey and that was a, a very good friend of mine, um, Ian Roars, and his project was was fairly new at the time, a couple of years into it when we did that record together. Um, and I had a load of ideas for other records to do. Um, did the Matthew Hopkins, that was his first solo vinyl record. He was doing these little tiny runs on tape and CDRs and things like that. Um, and then basically just sort of life stuff happened, really. The third rec- the third release on Vitelli was going to be the Mudguards record. Mm. Um, and sort of stuff in my personal life, you know, uh, was happening. And also uh, the surviving member of the Mudguards, that was two guys, and the surviving member who I was making that record with, uh, he also had some personal stuff going on. And it, it just ended up taking ages to make. Um and 
by the time we were sort of nearly there, I just felt like, let's do something different. The, the Vitelli um, was a name that I chose um, based on the character Cosmo Vitelli from the Cassavetes film, Killing of a Chinese Cookie, which was a, a favourite film of mine. And um, and it kind of seemed pertinent as well, you know, the, the, to the folly of running a, a record label dealing in that kind of uh, material, you know. Um, but it ended up, someone said... I don't know if they said it directly to me or or if they said it on a website or in print about it sounding like a bottle of water. Um, and I thought, yeah, okay, fair point, you know. Um, and I also saw that it was misspelt so often as well. So that maybe there was part of me that was already thinking, oh, I should give it a different name, you know. Um, and the Horn of Plenty was actually a, a, um, a mudguards kind of project installation type thing from from the 80s. So that that kind of sowed the seed for that. And then I liked the idea of the Horn of Plenty just being like a cornucopia. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you said you sold all your records off at a, a point in your life, but what got you back to thinking about records and wanting to just start something up like that? What what was the bug or the instigator behind that? Firstly, Algamagen. When that label started, um, you know, I just kind of... Uh, couldn't resist it, you mm-hmm. know. <laughs> Bought some of those Algamagen records, and then when Graham started putting um, the, the Kai stuff out, Salmon Run. I mean, I think Salmon Run. It was his fault that lots of labels ended up starting <laughs> because once he did that, so many people just sort of thought, "Oh, wow, that's a, a good direction. This is mm-hmm. a good thing," you know. So um, yeah, it's all Graham Lampkin's fault. Let's say. <laughs> <laughs> sure. He, yeah, he's he's certainly uh, played a role in this podcast. I think anybody who's listened over the years, that's for sure. Sure, um, yeah. I want to go back and talk a little bit more about that London Sound Survey record that you just referenced a moment ago. It's called These Are the Good Times, and it was a, a really cool collection that you kind of plucked uh, some of the tracks from Ian's um, vast archive of, re- uh, of recordings. And I, I thought maybe it would be if you'd be willing to share what you found significant about those recordings that compelled you to to put it out. And I think it would be appropriate too to maybe talk about the significance of Ian's work in general because he had passed away uh, last fall. Yeah. So I think it'd be worth taking the time to talk about this. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, so yeah, Ian was a very close friend of mine, um, and. Just one of those beautiful characters. Anyone who ever met him never had a bad word to say. You know, mm-hmm. he, he never he never went through life making enemies or anything like that. Well, you know, that's that's great. There's quite a few characters like that. But he also had a very keen eye, a, a great sense of humour, and was was a really hard worker, a very dedicated kind of guy. And um, we we come from the same stock almost. You know, we're we're from the same era that kind of early 80s basically a narco-punk squat kind of scene mm-hmm. here um very formative years and, and a pretty sort of a um intense kind of way of life and period culturally politically all the rest of it you know mixed together and you tend to kind of bond with people that went through similar things you know so ian um yeah, I mean, I, th- I think a lot of people that, that met Ian or, or were aware of him through the London Sound Survey, you know, rightly so. They they see this middle-aged, fairly educated, 
polite guy, but you know, he he was he wasn't always like that. <laughs> Let's just say that. Um, I've just spent um, the last six months working on an archival release that's going to come out early next year from a um, a kind of um, an arco punk affiliated band that that Ian used to squat with a, a stone's throw from where I'm sitting now. Um, and yeah, he used to run a, a fanzine called Pigs for Slaughter um, that was, you know, um, let's just say not not a crass style pacifist rag. You know, mm-hmm. it was a di- direct action approach to his anarchist uh, tendencies, you know, so very different sort of character. But anyway, so anyone who knew him from that era, era um and knew that about him could kind of see in the London Sound Survey that this was not, this wasn't, you know, one of the dangers of, you know, photography or um, field recording or whatever is, is a privileged person walks into a situation and, and thinks they can somehow represent it by just being there for a, for a little while, you know, and, and Ian was, was, you know, it was, um, uh, was it Raph Samuels, the guy who, was the pioneer of um, oral history, this kind of history from below thing, you know, Ian was big on that. Um, and um, yeah, he used to spend a lot of time getting those recordings and put himself in situations that, you know, that perhaps other people might not be willing to do, you know. Um, and there was a lot of other sort of unrealised or failed ideas that, that he had as well, you know, which would have been really quite good, you know. Um, so yeah, there was definitely a side to him that wasn't as sort of polite and and um, um, safe as 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 might come across in his work, you know. Yeah, it's it's pretty remarkable too. If anybody just goes and spends a little bit of time on the London Sound Survey website, just the amount of work and documentation that went into what he was doing, it's it's pretty impressive, honestly. Yeah, yeah, and and it's worth noting as well that that there was no funding applications mm-hmm. you know this was a hobby and he was he was a a proud amateur mm-hmm. you know um this was something he did in his spare time off his own back with his own money yeah um, beautiful thing yeah wonderful yeah well let's play a couple tracks from that record i'm gonna play two that have a nice contrast to them one's called polyphon music box and followed by uh, sun street passage again this is london sound survey
I think you sort of addressed this previously, but I guess what led ultimately to the formation of of Horn of Plenty? Like, what was the tipping point? Like, okay, this is the new direction that I'm taking. Was it was it the Mudguards release finally being prepared? Well, um, kind of, yeah. The, the Mudguards, as I say, had been sort of percolating for for a few years. Can't remember exactly how long, but I don't know, maybe maybe four years or three years or something like that. Um, and also sort of bubbling alongside that was the, the Monique Darge record um, because um, th- that actually was, was specifically Graham Lampkin's fault. He, he When Monique came over with Matthew in, oh, I don't know, let me say eight years ago or something, um, Graham mentioned this unreleased Monique track. Um, he pitched it to me as as, a, as it sounded somewhere between early White House 
and Christina Kubisch, <laughs> which just straight away I thought, oh, I've got to hear that, you know. Um, and I spoke to Monique about it then, and she said, yeah, yeah, you can do something with that if you want. So that had been sort of bubbling under for for quite some time, and she'd been digging in the Logos archives and sending me stuff from there. And then really COVID hit, and, and that was... Um, Oh, no, 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 I'm wrong. Sorry. So the, the Mudguards, I finally got the Mudguards out in about 19, uh, 2018 or something like that, I think. Um, and I really had no idea how how that record would be received. Again, that was, you know, very close to me, that record. Um, two guys who had been, you know, uh, friends with for a very long time, um, one of them, Martin, is you know was probably one probably my longest running friend. You know, we've known each other for forty years, I think. And um, and the other the other member of the band died sadly, and and that was what prompted uh, that record to to happen. You know, I'd had this cassette since nineteen eighty five or four or something like that of their stuff, and so that was that was what prompted that. So that record came out around the time that a record shop had opened here called Low Company. I don't know if you heard of those. Oh, oh yes, oh, yes. Um, yeah, so that was quite significant, actually, in sort of recent history here. You know, there was a scene that sort of coalesced around that, and, and their enthusiasm for that record um, was, you know, just it just took off, basically, you know. So um, so that was great. And then I thought, oh, I've got the money back really quick. I'll, I'll do that Monique record, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was sort of around the time that COVID hit. And that's when I just started having loads of ideas and because I wasn't going to work every day. And suddenly I was, you know, free to kind of uh, daydream and, and work on projects. And, yeah, I haven't stopped since. Right, right. Well, you know, it seems like there are so many labels nowadays that specialize in a certain type of music, whether it's like, you know, strictly an ambient label or a free jazz label, punk, what have you. But I do like how what you're doing with Horn of Plenty is kind of musically all over the map. But there does seem to be, I would say, this sort of unifying aesthetic that's a little bit hazy, a little bit lo-fi, maybe sort of folky, sort of nocturnal. It, do you feel that that's a, an accurate read? Is there sort of a quality that you think that speaks to you when you when you think of it as releasing it as a Horn of Plenty release? Um, yeah, that I think you're right, and I appreciate you saying that. Uh, you know, because I never sort of overtly say that on the records or or anywhere but yeah of course it's it's just it's an extension of being a dj isn't it you you put out the records that you want you want those records to exist so you you do it and and uh so yeah i do i am drawn to the sort of more lo-fi slightly um slightly it's hard to to you know it's unfair if i start using certain words because they don't apply to all the people i work with but just something a little bit uh, odd different weird you know whatever um they're the kind of records i like um they're the kind of records i like to buy mm-hmm. um and of course you know there's plenty of people doing them but i like it when they come from unexpected sources or just things you didn't already know i like to try and avoid the obvious if possible yeah you know? yeah well as i'm sure any mm-hmm. listeners of this show have picked up on mm-hmm. i am someone that still organizes a fair amount of my listening and oftentimes music purchases around like labels, you know, it's just 
labels that I find intriguing, and you've mentioned a few already, like Alga Margan was one and Kai Records was one, but, you know, with so much music out in the world to check out right now, is that something, is that still one of your primary filters for scoping out new music? What do you mean that, 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 that I, that's how I kind of approach looking for music by labels? Yeah, I mean, is, is, that, a, is that a way for you to sort of, I, I don't know, like, like I said, kind of filter things up because there's just so damn much music right now. Is that sort of a way, like once you've identified something that you find as a reliable source, do you go back to that often? Is that sort of your go-to method? Yeah, but there's there's not always a great deal of pleasure in that, I find. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I, I do. I mean, I've got favorite labels, con- contemporary labels, sure. you know, Ultra Exma, Penultimate Press, uh, you, you know, there's, 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 there's so many, Harbinger Sound. Um, these kind of labels consistently sort of deliver records that I'm interested in. But when I go record shopping, I like to go to secondhand shops and I like to give you an example. Just, you know, an hour ago I was in my local record shop, which is flashback records on Essex road here in London. And, um, I was in the classical section and for a fiver, there was a, a record that, I just read the blurb on the back and it said that it was recorded in Wigmore Hall. And I know Wigmore Hall, it's in central London and it was by amateur musicians. So it's, I'm sort of thinking to myself, okay, it's probably a one mic amateur recording. Essentially it's going to sound like a, an audience recording, you know, mm-hmm. and it, it's in this big wooden hall. Well, that gives you an idea what it's going to sound like. So you just got to hope that the musicians kind of deliver on their part of the the, the mm-hmm. bargain you know, and you, you know that the recording quality is going to be interesting and sure enough i had a quick listen on the headphones and it, it sounded quite intriguing certainly a fiver's worth definitely you know <laughs> right, right. happy to take a chance on that for a fiver you know um and, and that's I, I like i like that kind of thing you know or i like pulling out this weird sort of japanese record from 1981 that didn't seem to have much of an identity and i sort of thought oh that that looks like an oddball record, you know. And sure enough, it went from sounding like Rupert Holmes to to uh, sort of cod reggae, and then there was this kind of weird improvised track that was about three minutes long. And I thought, well, yeah, okay, that's it's worth it for that track, you know. Yeah. Chances of any of my mates having this record is pretty slim, so I'll, I'll have it, you know. Right, right. So that that's kind of what guides me a lot of the time. That's how I discovered Paul Chain. I took a punt on a pull chain record because it had improvisation in the title. Yeah. Uh, and I'd never heard of him and I sort of felt like I knew all the obvious improv types, you know. Mm-hmm. It had an intriguing cover. And um, yeah, sure enough, I was completely besotted with this record and um took me years to kind of find out more about him and, and then I spent years trying to contact him. And yeah, it... it the more I went into it, the more mysterious and weird and misdirected I became. And, and it was all stacking up as being something I wanted to be involved in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, just hearing you talk about uh, your time in a record shop and uh, your appreciation of just going and browsing bins, you mentioned low company. And I, and I think even in the past, you and I had had some exchanges about low company being a good source. And it seems like uh, shops like World of Echo have have a similar feel to it in terms of like these really impassioned reviews and highly curated st- stock. But I think like for you, what is I guess the importance of 
shops like this for for this area of music. I mean, I think we've lost a lot over the years, but I think there's still so much value um, in these shops. So this is a poorly worded question, I realize, but I mean, I think of like, what is the importance of a shop like that? Has how has it been for a label like Horn of Plenty? Well, um, beyond just how important they are for my label, just just for me as a person, you know, I mean, um, have, have you heard of Atlantis Records in Hackney? Mm-mm. It's just down the road from here as well. It's run by uh, a musician and a label uh, owner called John Coxon. Um, you've probably heard various projects he's been involved in over the years. Um, and it's all secondhand stuff. And it's incredible. Amazing. Follow them on Instagram and you'll see what I mean. Okay. The records they get and the way they present, the way they do what they do. Yeah. It's like, it's like I used to, um, in the 80s, I started buying records from sort of record dealers and you'd go around their, their flat, you know. Um, you'd walk in their living room and sit and have a cup of tea and smoke and look through the records with them and talk. They'd, you'd hear them talk about it and they'd talk you into the fucking records half the time. <laughs> they tell you a bit of a story of either about how they heard it or how that record was made and you don't get that on the internet mm-hmm. you know or, or you, well you, you, you do make a good point I mean Low Company did used to write amazing reviews and um, Stephen at World of Echo does a pretty good job of the, the, writing his reviews and telling you how he, he, he feels about these records so there is a bit of that going on but you you know for me you can't beat going in a shop meeting certain characters and yeah, I'm totally seduced by that experience. <laughs> you there ha- used to be you- a record shop around the corner from here, also on Essex Road, um, called Haggle Vinyl. Anyone local would would know this guy, um, and he was he hated people. He was not a people person at all, you know. And everyone who used to go in there has got stories about this guy that, that you know how rude he was or obstructive to you buying the record he could be <laughs> that sort of stuff he's sort of so like, i love all, i love all of that the classic record store like cantankerous record store clerk that sort of figure he was next level though this guy he was <laughs> you know borderline personality disorder yeah you know he was really out there here yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he'd be eating his dinner off of a record that you wanted to buy and so you couldn't buy it until he'd finished eating his lunch or whatever you know he was yeah <laughs> <laughs> power trip, power trip, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Well, let's set up this next block of music here. I'm going to play some of the stuff that you've put out this year. In fact, all four of the records that you put out to date are going to be included in this next block. But I thought we'd talk specifically about the two most recent ones. You've got a new 10-inch from Warm Currency, uh, which is the duo of M.P. Hopkins and Mary McDougal. Um, and then you've got this other one called Ava Tagali. Did I get it correct? Avita Galli. Thank, thank you. Um, but I should mention that both of these releases, you're, you're kind of working with artists that you've worked with previously uh, on the label before. Or at least Matthew, I guess, goes back to Vitelli, sure. in fact. Sure, yeah, 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 yeah. Anything you want to say about just those two releases in particular, what, what we were drawn to with those? Well, Matthew can do no wrong as far as I'm concerned. And <laughs> Mary, um, I, I actually, so, you know, you know that Matthew and Mary were in the bowls yes, and yep. you know Vincent over the sink and um so all that stuff I really like um and I had kind of nudged Matthew a bit over the recent years you know could could is there a chance of, of them doing anything mm-hmm. again you know and I, th- I think they kind of tried um a couple of times and it never really kind of worked out and then 
I don't know if COVID was a factor, but certainly that's it, that record started to happen in 2020. Um, so yeah, it came it came together for for whatever reason. It was just things were lined up right, and it and it happened. And I'm really glad it did. It's it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, it's funny how they sort of didn't do any music for together for a long time. Um, and when they did, they moved forward, but still managed to keep some of their identity from those old right. records. You can still hear the bowls in, in warm currency, you know? Um, yeah. Great record. I'm really, really, really pleased to have released that one. So, um, and, and Mary, her contribution as well is, is, uh, you know, she doesn't do much music, but when she does, it, it counts, you know? Right. So, uh, right. really, really proud, really pleased to be, uh, able to release that. Avita Galli is, uh, Valentina Magaletti, who also lives very close to me um, here. Um, and this time, this is a friend of hers, Pino Montecalvo, who lives in Bari in southern Italy, which is where Valentina's from. Um, and she went to visit her family, um, I guess it was 2020, Christmas time. Um, and she ended up sort of getting cooped up there for a while. And so she her and Pino were recording. Pino's been involved in music for a long time. He was in a band that I can't pronounce the name of in the 90s. Um, and he runs a small label called um, Music a la Coq, um, which I think he's got a band camp. He's definitely got some kind of web pre- presence and he's done some CDs and tapes and all the rest of it. Um, and he's kind of uh, very playful. You know, he likes to play around with toys and radios and balloons and, and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Uh, that seemed to me to be a really nice marriage of, uh, you know, a professional musician and a kind of arch um, prankster. You know? Right, uh, right. I and think I think we could each other. We could probably say that uh, Valentina's work uh, she could do no wrong either, because holy cow, she's put out some incredible work with all sorts of groups and solo collaborative stuff. Just an amazing, talented person. Yeah, there's a conspiracy, isn't there? That there's there's half a dozen Valentina Magalettis. There's not just one because she's on so, <laughs> right. so many records. You know? Where does she find the time, right? <laughs> I know, I, I don't know, but um, yeah, she's done she's done so much, and and again, it's it's all it's all of of high quality. You know, there's right. there's no kind of no shit in between, is there? You know, it's yeah. uh, good stuff. Yeah, well, let's start this uh, block of music off with a track from that Warm Currency release. It's a track called Spider Credit. Fragrance, scent, bleached, soaking in the mud, in 
told not to wait. Marker, brush, coins hover in the sky. A messenger made of sugar, no rest. Chairs murmur, evening bodies press forward. Grazie a tutti.
that you've been able to get four albums <laughs> out this year already. And I mean, I know by some label standards that's nothing, but it's like, uh, and, and you got a couple more coming out soon. Uh, can we discuss maybe a little bit of, about just kind of the general lay of the land for running the label? I know I asked Mark Harwood a few months ago when I had him on the show um, if, if he's started to see any improvements in terms of pressing plant issues and, and things like that. How has that been for you where you're at in London? Um, well, I've had the same troubles that everybody's had, I suppose. Um, and it was, I think, last year in particular, I really felt it. Um, but I, 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 my laziness kind of paid off a little bit. I stayed with the same um, pressing plant that I was already using. Um, and that seemed to pay off for me. A lot of people were looking for different pressing plants and a lot of pressing plants were offering you know were sort of jumping up and down saying oh look we're new we can do it in three months don't you know come to us and and then of course 
not always but but i heard some horror stories around that as well you know mm -hmm. so um i just kind of held my ground stuck to the same format and the same company um and actually these last couple with uh, at the beginning of this year i thought i'd be lucky to release four records mm -hmm. but it looks like i could get seven out um but, but i don't want to jinx it by saying that but <laughs> right, what, right. What, the fifth one is already here that just arrived the other day the sixth one is due anytime now and the seventh hopefully will, will happen in october november so um i i was i like tapes and I'll, i will continue to do tapes from time to time but i've never been a cd man I've, I've always liked records they always did it for me so i never i was never tempted to jump across to that format either mm -hmm. you know i mean I, if if a project came my way that i really felt it belonged on that format then maybe i would do it but i've got hundreds of cds but i've never been excited by yeah yeah by getting it's never the same relationship you know mm -hmm. controversial i know i know a lot of people have spoke up in favor of the cd recently you know and that, that's fine they're all valid it's great to have all these different options but personally i like records right right you know given the challenges that you went through over the last couple of years, was there any point where you're just like, it, did it sour your experience where you're like, I'm done with this? Or did you just, like you were mentioning, you're just going to plow on through and stick with it and see what happens? Did you, did you get discouraged to the point where you're like, maybe this isn't going <laughs> to fly anymore? No, funnily enough, I'm, I'm usually the first one to, to, to be flying the flag of doom, <laughs> you know, but um, uh, for some reason I, I sort of held me, me nerve and just, got me head down and carried on and and um you know it's it seems to have paid off so far um i mean i i, I guess i'm sort of lucky in the sense that um i haven't got young children i've got you know a grown-up son um who essentially doesn't bleed me dry financially um i don't own anything um you know i i, I live in a council flat um i, I you know so financially I can sort of, you know, live live on porridge for a couple of months and put all my money into doing this stuff and, and you know, no one no one's gonna kind of um call social services or anything like that. So I can kind of do it. Um and that's that's really what I've decided to do this last couple of years to just get my head down and go for it and see see what happens. I'm a little bit concerned, if I'm honest, the price of records mm -hmm. in shops. Um I'm a little bit concerned that people won't be able to afford to buy records. I know I can't afford yeah. to buy them as much as I could. So all this work, I think it could start to fall down if, if people just can't afford to buy them. Yeah, legitimate concern. I know when I go into a record shop, most new records now are almost $30 every time. Yeah. You know, it's like, Man. ooh. So it makes secondhand buying much more appealing at this point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you've got to really want it. for. I mean, that, that works out to you know 20 to 25 quid for a record now here um you've got to really want it for that haven't right. you, you know right and that's before we start talking about the rally de nude uh <laughs> official represses at 50 quid or whatever it's gone on pre-order for right. you know it, it, it is getting a bit daft all of that you know? yeah for sure well let's discuss the the next few records that you have coming out you've provided some tracks that we can play to to premiere i guess on the show another one from little skull and and then something new from a, a group called samutech which is totally new to me but what's I'd like to talk about Little Skull a little bit more, just because I'm so impressed. I like I love the sound of those records, but my goodness, the artwork. I mean, these are just amazing art objects, and I'm wondering if the new one 
is going to be similar. I imagine so. Well, that's, uh, I'll let other people, you know, um, talk about that, but I would say so. Yes. Um, so this new release, um, is called untitled and it's actually a reissue. Mm. It's the first little skull LP. Um, it originally came out in a very small run as a CDR on students of decay about 12 years ago. Okay. Um, in a handmade case. So we've replicated that um, for the record. Um, Dean, Little Skull is, is Dean Brown, who's a friend of mine who I met through Low Company Records. Um, mm. I was buying his records and I was really into them. And just by sort of accident, someone else in the shop heard me talk about him to Kenny, who was working in, in the shop that day. And he said, oh, I know him. He lives around the corner. And I had no idea. I thought he lived in, you know, Dunedin or something. And um, so, yeah, that's that's how we, we ended up meeting. Um, and, yeah, he's amazing. Dean is, is a, a really talented guy, really nice guy, um, constantly surprises me. He's very humble, you know. He's, he's sitting on so much good stuff. Um, and, um, yeah, that 10-inch that we did, we were just walking down the road one day and, and I said to him, oh, I've never released a 10-inch and you haven't either. We should do one. And he said, yeah. And about four days later, he, he emailed me <laughs> one, one night and said, um, here's some tracks. What do you think? And he, yeah, he'd just gone home and recorded them and yeah. that was that 10-inch, you know. Um, so, yeah, this this new LP, Untitled, is, um, as I said, is a reissue. It's got an extra track from the CDR. Okay. Um, and we've we've done our best to replicate the artwork from that CDR. So Dean is, as we speak, hand making the outer cover for this record. <laughs> yeah, which I, I mean, that has got to be so time consuming per jacket. Yeah. just the amount that goes yeah. into that. Yeah, incredible. That's why we do small runs. You know, yeah. um, I've, I've said to him about doing five hundred copies, and he just gives me that look of. Right, man. So yeah, we three hundred of this one. Let's talk about the other one that you have too, Samutech. Can you? I, I don't know anything about this project or group or whatever it is. I, I've never heard of them. So uh, Samutech is an individual. It's a young guy um, in uh, Warsaw, in Poland, um, called Mateusz Voss, and uh, he's um, got a Bandcamp page, um, and that's how I found him a couple of years ago. And I was kind of keeping an eye on him, which is something i do i kind of you know watch people and mm -hmm. i can there's certain people that i hear i don't want to sound like too much of a wanker but um <laughs> you know i kind of kind of hear potential if you like or i hear something there and i think okay I'll, I'll keep an eye on them um and he did a tape on a label called alicia about a year ago um that i've forgotten the name of now um and i thought that was really good i really liked it it was kind of a mixture between sort of free folk and um henning christensen or something like that um and so we started talking i think i think i'd already messaged him a couple of times and kind of you know we were already chatting from time to time um and yeah so i invited him to to, to do a record and uh, a few months later he submitted um this lp which is a, a kind of a concept record you know mm -hmm. it's um Museum of Natural History. It's uh, a kind of um, lucid dream experience. Um, there's, I won't spoil it by sort of giving the whole thing away, but there's, there's, you, there's inserts. You can read what the concept is, and if you speak Polish, you can hear what the concept is on the record. Um, 
and yeah, yeah, it's, it's nice to to work with someone young who no one's heard of, you know. Um, so yeah, I'm really proud to to be doing these two records. Yeah, well, you, people get a chance to hear uh, samples from both of them here. So I'll start off this last uh, block of music uh, with the track. It's track number four from the untitled one from Little Skull. Nick, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks for the invite, David. Yeah, much appreciated. For sure. Here's Little Skull. Jest gotowa wkroczyć 
że całą drogę pokonasz beze mnie. Moje zadanie polega jedynie na otwarciu Ci drzwi i zaproszenia do wnętrza prawdziwej istoty naszego świata. Na swej drodze spotkasz inne duchy
And that's going to bring things to an end for this installment of the show. I'd like to thank Nick once again for taking the time to chat with me. If you'd like to check out the complete playlist for this episode, you can go to our website at freeformfreakout.com. There are links that will bring you to each of the releases played and where you can purchase either digital or physical copies. I'd encourage you to support these artists and the Horn of Plenty label directly as much as you can. If you have any questions or comments, you can always get in touch with me at fffreakout at hotmail.com. I'll be back again in a couple of weeks with another new episode. Until then, thanks so much for listening.